This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Now, maybe you can't afford that full-size E30 M3 or that rare 71 Nissan Skyline GTR. And that's probably okay, because your garage is already chock full of other projects. And you've been turning so many wrenches, your knuckles look like they belong to a prize fighter. The last thing you need to do is muck about with another old car. And that's where Model Citizen Diecast comes in. They sell collector-grade scale model cars from manufacturers like Amalgam, Auto Art, Mini Champs, and others. They stock 143rd scale and 118th scale offerings. From streetcars to race machines, from pre-war classics to brand spanking new cars, Model Citizen Diecast has something for just about every interest and price range. Shop their online catalog at ModelCitizenDieCast.com or check out their Instagram page at Model Citizen Diecast. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. My name is Maurice Merrick, and greetings to all of you listening from faraway places like Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, Smyrna, Georgia, Palestine, Texas, Eagle, Idaho, Ontario, Canada, Barquisimeto, Venezuela, Ramstein, Germany, and last but not least, Brussels, Belgium. Thanks for checking out the show, and if you like what you hear, subscribe, click that five-star rating, and leave me a review. All of those things will help me reach more gearheads like you. Well, today we're going to talk about motorsport. Now, I know not everyone who's into cars and motorcycles is necessarily a racing fan, but just remember that motorsport has probably been the most important constant factor in making our machines better. Because when you race, you break stuff. You find the weak spots, and you push the technology forward. And the people who do the racing are equally amazing. Imagine how you'd feel sliding sideways on a rainy track in the middle of the night or trying to hold the wheel steady at 200 miles per hour. It takes a special kind of person to lay it on the line like that. So if you're not a race fan now, maybe you will be by the time we're done here. So with that, I give you, in no particular order, five motorsport events you must see before you die. Let's get started. Number one, the Isle of Man Tourist Trophy. Jutting out of the Irish Sea about halfway between England and Ireland lies the Isle of Man. Humans have inhabited this 221 square mile refuge for about 10,000 years. But if those ancient peoples could see what happens on the Isle of Man every spring, they would be awestruck by the sheer sorcery of it all. And I say that because since 1907, the island has hosted the Tourist Trophy Motorcycle Races, one of the most spectacular and probably the most dangerous motorsport events in the world. Only four things have interrupted the TT since 1907. World War I, World War II, the foot and mouth livestock epidemic of 2001, and the coronavirus pandemic of 2020. Now, it has an independent government, But the Isle of Man is not its own country. Officially, it is a crown dependency, meaning it's not part of the United Kingdom, but certain responsibilities fall to the British crown, such as defense and foreign relations. And I would argue that the island's governmental independence has allowed the TT to survive in a world fixated on risk management and liability. 
Because you see, the TT is run on public roads at top speeds of over 200 miles per hour and average speeds hitting over 130 miles per hour on a winding 37-mile course that takes riders along the shoreline through the island's mountainous rural interior, as well as just inches from garden walls and signposts in town. One could debate whether it's the world's greatest motorcycle race, but it is unquestionably the deadliest. 151 competitors have lost their lives at the TT, along with over 100 spectators. It's insane, but it also brings tens of thousands of race fans and millions of dollars to the island each year. And everyone involved is keenly aware of the risk. For the riders, it's Mount Everest on two wheels. So they press on. The TT is a two-week event. Week one is for practice, and week two is official racing. There are six time trial events covering various engine displacements and construction rules. Superbike, sidecar, super sport, super stock, lightweight, TT0 for electric motorcycles, and the granddaddy event, the senior TT. Only the world's best make it to the Isle of Man. Legends like John Surtees, Mike Halewood, and the great Joey Dunlop a soft-spoken Irishman who won a total of 26 TT races over the years. The riders aren't in it for the money. The top prize money for 2019 was just 18,000 pounds sterling, or just under $24,000. And it's one of the most up-close and personal experiences you could want as a spectator, because you're allowed in the paddock to see the bikes and their crews and come face-to-face -face with the riders. The official scoreboard is still handled the old-fashioned way, with lap times hand-painted on individual slates. Boy Scouts run the slates between the control tower and the scoreboard, handing them off to the board operators. And during the races, you can sip a pint within arm's length of the bikes and feel the rush of air as they rocket past you. There are plenty of places on the Isle of Man to see the races, whether it's in the island's interior whether it's in town or out in the countryside, people gather along the road all over the island to watch the riders fly past. So if you're a motorcycle fan, you've got to see the Isle of Man TT. Number two, a Grand Prix race. We all know the names of legendary Grand Prix circuits like Monaco, Spa-Francorchamps, Monza, Silverstone, Everyone seems to have a favorite, but I think that's often based on television viewing because being there is more complicated. Now, when I say Grand Prix, after World War II, Grand Prix cars were developed into a formula. Essentially, Grand Prix racing became Formula One. There are currently 22 Formula One races on the calendar for 2021, and obviously no two overall experiences would be alike. But when you start looking at travel expenses, accessibility, and the actual race viewing experience, my best all-around pick would have to be the Mexico City Grand Prix, which, by the way, is a new name for an old race. It was historically the Mexican Grand Prix. First, let's talk about the circuit. The Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez is located at the city's massive sports complex, and it first hosted the Mexican Grand Prix in 1963. It's named in honor of Ricardo and Pedro Rodriguez, native sons of Mexico City. Ricardo was killed during a practice run at the track in 1962 when the rear suspension of his Lotus failed at speed. And sadly, Pedro died in Germany in 1971 when his Ferrari hit the wall and caught fire. 
Pedro was a fantastic driver with many wins under his belt, and Ricardo certainly had great potential. Over the years, the Mexican Grand Prix has had some long absences on the F1 calendar. In the early years, they had trouble managing the huge crowds, and later they had difficulty in keeping up on maintenance for the track. But the race returned in 2015 after the track and surrounding facilities were fully renovated. F1 fans now consistently rank this track as one of their favorites. There's not a bad seat in the house, and the atmosphere in the crowd is communal and very enthusiastic. It's also a very accessible venue, just minutes from the airport and many hotels. There's even subway access to the sports complex. And as world capitals go, Mexico City is also a surprisingly good value, even if you will pay a substantial amount for the race itself. Restaurants, nightlife, cultural attractions, and most importantly, the warm spirit of Mexico City combine to make the whole experience of this Grand Prix race a winner. Number 3. Goodwood Revival During World War II, the Royal Air Force established numerous airfields for perimeter defense, and one such airfield was built at Goodwood Estate, situated in West Sussex in the south of England. This was RAF West Hampnet, and it served as an auxiliary and emergency landing strip for Allied air crews until the war's end. In 1948, the landowner, Frederick Charles Gordon Lennox, 9th Duke of Richmond, built a racing circuit around the airfield. Freddie, as he was known, had been a racing driver in the 20s and 30s. The Goodwood circuit was active through the mid-1960s, playing host to greats like Jim Clark, Graham Hill, and Mike Hawthorne. And it was at Goodwood that Sterling Moss had his near-fatal crash in 1962, which ended his career. And sadly, it was also the place where 32-year-old Bruce McLaren was killed in 1970 while testing a new Can-Am car. Goodwood closed to regular racing in 1966. But in 1998, the course came to life again, thanks to Freddie's grandson, Charles March, 11th Duke of Richmond. And so the three days of the Goodwood revival celebrate the circuit's original era, 1948 to 1966. And cars and motorcycles from that period are enthusiastically flogged around the track, often by the top personalities in motorsport like Dario Franchitti and Troy Corser. Goodwood might be the only place on earth that you'll see a Ferrari 250 GTO worth tens of millions spin onto the grass and into the wall. But you'll also see Mini Coopers, Ford Galaxies, BMW 1800s, Alfa Romeo Giulias, and many other everyman racers do battle. Goodwood is an immersive experience, with everyone in attendance required to wear period clothing. You'll see flyovers by vintage Spitfires and other warbirds, and the paddocks and grandstand seating will take you back to the golden age of motor racing. Number 4. A Baja Off-Road Race Well, you've probably seen The Great Escape, or Bullet, two great Steve McQueen films. One of McQueen's best friends was a stuntman in both of those pictures. But before his Hollywood stunt work, he was an off-road motorcycle racing pioneer and a Triumph and Honda dealer. His name was Bud Eakins. In 1962, Bud's relationship with the American distributors of Honda motorcycles 
led them to ask if he would help them test their new CL-72 Scrambler on a long-distance run down Mexico's Baja Peninsula. Eakins decided not to make the run himself because he couldn't risk his relationship with Triumph, and at that time, Honda was a newcomer to the American market. But he did help plan the test route, Tijuana south to La Paz, 950 miles of desert sand and rock. The Honda team covered the distance in 39 hours, 56 minutes. And soon others began to challenge that time. And then in 1966, a 4x4 guy named Ed Perlman got together with his buddy Don Francisco, and they founded NORA, the National Off-Road Racing Association. Don Francisco was an engine builder and an ace mechanic. He'd built cars for the La Carrera Panamericana Mexican road race in the 50s. So the next year, 1967, NORA ran the first Mexican 1000. The winning entry was a Myers-Manx dune buggy. The Mexican 1000 was a tremendous success in the first few years, but the oil crisis in 1973 disrupted everything. Thinking that no one was likely to show because gas was so expensive, Nora decided to cancel the 1974 race. So the governor of Baja, California, turned to racing driver and motorsport entrepreneur Mickey Thompson, who had formed an off-road race sanctioning body called Southern California Off-Road Enthusiasts, or SCORE. Even though SCORE took the reins, the 74 race never did take place. But SCORE has held on to the franchise ever since, having renamed it the Baja 1000. Today, there are hundreds of teams in 47 different classes in the race, from motorcycles to trophy trucks. And the trophy trucks are insane, hitting 100 miles an hour over extreme washboard terrain and topping 140 miles an hour in the flats. Here are just a few specs. 800 horsepower Ford or Chevy V8s, chrome molly steel tube space frames, custom fiberglass bodies, 40-inch tires, and 3 feet of wheel travel. The Baja 500 and the Baja 1000 are time trials, and they usually change it up every other year. One year it'll be a point-to-point race from Ensenada to La Paz, and the next year it'll be a start-and-finish loop out of Ensenada. So how do you take part as a spectator in a meaningful way? I mean, it's a thousand miles, just about. Well, it's not easy. The official map isn't released until about a month before the race, and the course changes every year. So you could end up eating dust and getting sunburned without much to show for it. You might only see a vehicle every 20 minutes on the course. You'll definitely need to do your research well in advance and start making friends with experienced Baja travelers. These races are as much about the scene and the Baja vibe as they are about the competition. One of the most popular parts of Baja is attending the Tech and Contingency Parade in Ensenada, and you'll be able to see the vehicles up close, mixed with team members, and maybe even some drivers. But you should know right now, it's a total circus. Lots of people choose to watch the official start. Every entry starts one minute apart, but you're going to stand there in one place for hours with thousands of other people and not see much action. After the official start, many people like to head out of town, farther down the course to a place like San Felipe, for example, and camp out. So you can see how much advanced research this is going to require, and you've got to be self-contained and ready for anything. One thing you do need to know, forget about chasing the race. Chasing the race is a very bad idea. It's more dangerous than being in the race. There are fatal accidents each year. So, if you want to get serious about attending a Baja race, my suggestion is to do this. Volunteer to work for a racing team. Most of the teams depend on a small army of off-road fans to support their entries. 
You'll be dirty, sweaty, greasy, uncomfortable, and love every minute of it, even when you're hating it. You'll have skin in the game. And when all is said and done, whether your team finishes or not, the cold beer and fish tacos will taste that much better. By the way, there's an alternative to the score Baja races, because Nora was resurrected in 2010, and they've been running the Mexican 1000 and the Nora 500 since then. The Nora races pay special attention to vintage classes and backyard entries, from Safari Porsche 911s to first-generation Broncos. And my suggestion on the Mexican 1000 or the Nora 500 would be the same. Volunteer for a team, work your butt off, and enjoy every minute of it. Number 5. Bonneville Speed Week Every August, the Southern California Timing Association sponsors six days of land speed trials in the Utah desert. Some entries are looking for an official world record, but others just show up to get timed for their personal best and say they ran at Bonneville. And that could be you. The magic of Bonneville is that you don't need factory sponsorships or your own personal fortune to go fast. Anyone can pick up an SCTA rulebook, build a land speed car or motorcycle in their garage, and run it at Bonneville. And I'm not trying to make it sound easy, but it can be done. Benjamin Louis Eulalie de Bonneville was born in Paris in 1796 and emigrated with his family to the United States at seven years of age. Bonneville's grandfather was none other than Thomas Paine, the father of the American Revolution, who wrote the pamphlet Common Sense. Bonneville attended the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York, and was soon posted to the Western Frontier. But he was anxious to join the exploration of the Far West, and he was granted leave from his army duties to mount a survey expedition to Oregon. Along the way, members of Bonneville's team surveyed the ancient geologic and glacial remains of a vast inland sea, bone dry and covered in a hard crust of salt. Bonneville himself never saw the salt flats, and in fact, the spot didn't bear his name until 1890, 12 years after his death. Early automobile racers had been using natural tracks like Ormond Beach and Daytona Beach in Florida for their high-speed record runs, but they soon recognized that the dead-level, hard-as-a-rock, unsullied salt surface at Bonneville would be perfect for running their machines flat out. In August 1914, a Southern California actor, stuntman, and racer named Teddy Tetzlaff came to Bonneville with his Blitzen Benz, one of six cars constructed by the Benz Company. Blitzen means lightning in German. Anyway, Terrible Teddy, as he was called, set an unofficial land speed record of 142.8 miles per hour. 21 years later, on August 31, 1935, Utah native Ab Jenkins went to Bonneville in a Model J Duesenberg Special. The car had a few modifications. Twin carburetors, a supercharger, a Cyclops headlamp, streamlined bodywork, and a full-length louvered belly pan. The Duesenberg Straight 8 was putting out about 400 horsepower, and Jenkins ran the car on a 10-mile oval for 24 hours, averaging 145.47 miles per hour. But just days later, on September 3, 1935, Englishman Sir Malcolm Campbell became the first man to hit 300 miles per hour in a car, his enormous Bluebird, powered by a 2,300-horsepower supercharged Rolls-Royce V12 aero engine. 
The Southern California Timing Association had been running land speed events at El Mirage Dry Lake in the California desert since the 30s, and the SCTA began holding events at Bonneville after World War II. Returning veterans were anxious to build their own belly tank racers and souped-up Ford Coupes, and the hot rod scene exploded. Year after year, the new generation of racers were trying to conquer the salt. There was Mickey Thompson with his streamliner called the Challenger, running four, count them, four supercharged big-block Pontiac V8s, each with its own Cadillac three-speed transmission, all of it unified with a complex mechanical linkage. Don't ask me how. And on September 9, 1960, Mickey Thompson hit 406.6 miles per hour in the Challenger. But if you really want to go fast, you need a jet or a rocket behind you. And guys like Craig Breedlove and Gary Gabalich were soon hitting speeds of over 600 miles per hour in their jet and rocket-powered cars. And just this year, George Poteet claimed the record for fastest piston engine car at 481.576 miles per hour in his dagger-like streamliner known as Speed Demon. The car runs a 557-cubic-inch, big-block, twin-turbo, methanol-burning Chevy V8 producing 3,156 horsepower. And Poteet clinched the record after he suffered a burnt piston in an earlier run. The team tore the engine down and repaired it right there on the salt. boy, George! But the days of thunder at Bonneville may be numbered. For a variety of reasons, all of which fall on mankind, the salt flats are shrinking and the salt is getting thin. In fact, it's been reduced from 90,000 acres 100 years ago to about 30,000 acres today. So in 2015, salt racers got together with conservationists and formed the Save the Salt Foundation, and they're trying to restore Bonneville in the off-season. Anyway, you can learn more about their efforts at savethesalt.org, and I'll put a link in the show notes. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one more Bonneville competitor. This year, on August 14th, 69-year-old motorcyclist Ralph Hudson was attempting to set the 300-mile-per-hour record on his Suzuki GSX R1000 when a crosswind caught his machine and sent it into a wobble, causing Hudson to crash at 252 miles per hour. Ralph Hudson was airlifted to Salt Lake City with critical injuries and he died on September 6th. Hudson's motorcycle was not a low-slung, encapsulated type like you might be thinking. It was actually a conventional riding position configuration with a custom fairing. So Ralph was sitting on top of the bike, and he was in the wind. The guy had guts. Ralph was a veteran racer, and he was much respected in the land speed community. And after his death, Ralph's son David decided to set up a scholarship fund in his father's name. The Ralph Hudson Scholarship Fund will help support a new generation of talented builders and tradespeople. Many of these students will go into welding and fabrication, which can lead them into the sport of land speed racing or motorsport in general. If you'd like to support the Ralph Hudson Scholarship Fund, go to scta-bni.org. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Well, that's our show for this week. And I'm curious to know what's on your motorsport bucket list. Drop a comment on my Instagram page at Horsepower Heritage or send me an email at horsepowerheritage at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show with your friends. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.